back to a very special episode of Unrespectability Politics. My name is Alexis. And I'm DeAndrea. Hi, DeAndrea. How are you? Hi, sister. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm even more great today because... Great. Tell us why. Girl, we have a guest on our show that I think that a lot of our listeners will appreciate just because we've been talking about the census for so long. Um, this particular person, I met them, um, a few years ago, um, girl, you know, the, at the auntie fest, um, so. oh, girl. auntie fest where I was being an auntie myself before okay. I was actually a real auntie anyways. Um, yeah. And I'm very excited to have him on. His name is Julius Mena. He works as a partnership coordinator at the U.S. Census Bureau. He also previously worked as a policy and inclusive innovation specialist at the Minority Business Development Agency. And he holds an undergraduate degree in quantitative methods um, with a minor in economics from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Um, shout out for those who really understand quantitative methods, because your girl been trying to get that down as a skill these last two years. And I have a lot of respect for people who do it. Um, yes, bro. Right. Shout out to Baltimore also, because our um, sound engineer is from Baltimore. So there's a little connection there. That's cute. Be more. Okay. Be more. Be more. Um, <laughs> and yeah. So let me also get some more of these receipts, boo. Um, he has a master's degree in human resource development from Bowie State University. Come on, and- Bowie State. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, I'm trying to get him ready, and he already ready. Like he already he ready. Ready. That's the type of energy we love to see. We love to see it. Okay. Right, and last but certainly not least. He recently attained his JD, his Juris Doctor, dear, um, his law degree from the University of Baltimore School of Law. So, yeah, we got a yeah. big hitter today. Hi, Julius. <laughs> Thank you for coming on our show today. Thank you all for having me on. I'm excited. You know, this is this is a big deal. I'm respectability politics. Yeah. 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 This is where you come get your news. Laugh a little bit, learn a little bit about the culture, and you know, like vibe with us a little bit. So, um, out of what I mentioned in your bio, is there anything that you want to share with our listeners before we dive right in? No, so I just like to say before all of that, I um, my big passion is education. So I am an educated heart. Right on. Uh, my name right on. is Different World Dwayne, and if you ever met me in real life, you will see that there is like like clear like just similarities between that character and myself. So I like numbers, I like our people, and I'm a big HBCU advocate. In addition to all of that, so let's get it. Let's let's get it popping. HBCU Pride Nation, okay? Period. Shout out to the Aggies, always. <laughs> so, all like, that. usually it's me being smack, but that was Alexis that I'm time. Like, I, was like, trying I, to just, I, I love all of the HBCUs. I just, you know, he shouted out his. We should shout out ours. HBCU Pride together, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay, so working with the census, we have a bunch of questions, um, and we really want to know, like, not only, like, what have you been experiencing, but also kind of like, what do you 
as far as being a black man at the U.S. Census Bureau, a, a HBCU graduate, um, been a part of this work, this social justice work. What is your historical perspective and why does the U.S. conduct a decennial census? That's a brilliant lead up. You know, it's almost like I knew the question was coming. But no, um, I think... In terms of the growth specifically, um, most people are appointed for two years. Uh, census Bureau is under the Department of Commerce. And um, before I talk about the census per se, um, I'm big on policy impact. I think a lot of times within government, you, you hear about roles that which impact our communities, but we don't usually have people positioned to, you know, tell that story in a way that we can benefit from what it means to be a resident of this, you know, great country. Um, in terms of the census, historically, um, it's been conducted since 1790. So it's a population count of the, of the nation's population. And based on the count, that's how the federal government determines how to give money to states. And that, that's money for um, roads, schools. You know, as, as population grows, they usually turn to the federal government and they say, hey, our school district is getting bigger. We right. need more funding for teachers. So right. Usually breaks down to that. But the historical perspective, though, First one, 1790, I tell people, you got to put history in context, right? Where were we in 1790, right? And I mean, <laughs> intentionally, right? Um, the 1787 was actually the three-fifths compromise. You know, that's when they were trying to determine um, what do we do with these, um, and I'll call them indentured servants, um, <laughs> for, for the purposes of allocating funds, right? Uh, people said, I pay my taxes based on my property. And for the people listening, you can read between those lines because some people were actually property. Um, how do we determine oh, yeah. how to get my taxes back? Um, how do how we get representation? And so they said the census. Um, 1790 was the first one. And at the time, given the three-fifths compromise, um, the three things that you had to fill out were, are you free? Are you a slave? Um, or are you white? Those were the three categories for the first census. So um, I'll stop there and let y'all ask questions, but that is the historical backdrop. Um, in 1860 was actually the first time African-Americans were counted as a whole person. So for, from 1790 to 1860, we were three-fifths. And as you understand, if it comes down to representation and, and literally dollars and cents, um, it's an interesting historical backdrop, to say the least. So. Yeah, what you mentioned a lot, I thank you for that also that historical lesson. Um, I think we learn about the three-fifths compromise and it may or may not mean something to us when we were children, but because the census was done since 1790, I think this is just a, a valuable conversation to have yeah. right now, um, especially com coming full circle with this 2020 yeah. census. So can you tell us a little bit about how the 2020, 2020 census is different from the 2010 census? Absolutely. And so I, I want to underscore and say progress is still progress. This is progress. We've come a long way. So I don't, the history is one thing, you know, um, it's important for you to know it, but it's important to see where we're going as a country. So the beauty of this country is it's changed, right? You could take, if you take a snapshot of America now versus then, um, the the brand the, the tapestry of diversity has made the country better. We know that. Um, in 2010, 
However, we were still stuck on counting people the old fashioned way. So the count used to always be, you get a paper form, somebody knocks on your door and says, hey, can you fill out this form? Now, you know, it's nine questions, you know, it's not that long, but for the first time ever in 2020, you could fill that out online. So beginning March 12th, you got a postcard in the mail saying, go online. Um, And for a lot of people, because we are a millennial generation, the assumption is it's always been online and the reality is it has not. This is the first time ever since 1790 we've been able to fill wow. out the census online. And what makes it exciting is it's first time ever it's been available in 13 plus languages because we went online, right? So I tell people technology is a beautiful thing. And, and for the first time ever, we're there. The government finally caught up to the idea that computers are a thing. Um, and we're letting people, you know, anywhere in the world, well, anywhere in, in the continental United States and the, the various states, uh, to go online. You can still call in over the phone, um, which was not an option available in 2010 either, um, because we realized, although we went online, broadband is an issue. So this, this celebration that everybody can go online and uh, data tells us that's not true. Not everyone has access to broadband. So we kept, we kept the phone line as an option and the paper form is also still available. So in comparison to 2010, you have three different ways to complete the census. So that's the different, the same things, um, the things that have stayed the same are, it is still constitutionally protected. We do not share your information with CIA, IRS or FBI, right? That has not changed um, since Title 13 was enacted. Um, And all that means is the information, once you give it to us, it's secure. And, and you can really trust that it's just used as an aggregate number to determine how much money your state, your community, your schools, your roads, you know, that funding from the federal government, we, we, we take the count and we make sure people get um, what they need in their community. Yeah, that's really dope. Um, it's funny that you mentioned the technology piece. I feel like that is something that has been kind of like a hot topic now that we are in the wake of this pandemic and things are moving virtual. So I'm really glad to see that the census has elevated, um, obviously in 10 years, but I feel like that's really awesome um, to be able to make it a little bit more accessible, um, you know, with the caveat that people have access to internet, which is which is a whole nother topic. But yes, that's cool. Yes, ma'am. So I know Deandra has some policy questions that she wants to ask you. And I of know she's probably chomping at the bit. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So as policy thinkers, we understand, you know, what the census provides. And can you speak to some of those things that, that the census provides to policy thinkers, such as data sets and how they can be used? No, absolutely. So the beautiful thing about data, it's a new currency, right? So you got to always frame whenever, whenever we talk about policy, um, you have to first understand the power of numbers and data because everybody uses it either for good or bad and how you tell the story. Um, data sets, meaning a unique capture of information. Um, and a lot of times when you look at a data set, you're, you, you're going to a source, right? So most people, you're, you don't have a unique data set. You're relying on somebody else's data. Well, we have is a unique data set that is free, open, and public. So you can literally take everything we aggregate, and that's um, population metrics, you know, transportation metrics, how many teachers in a school district, and then use that to advocate for a thing, right? So policy in its best case should be an advocacy-driven uh, thing, but you can't advocate if you don't know the data. And so what we do is we give you that weapon to go say, hey, 
um, based on the data, there's not enough teachers in that school system, right? So now we can create grant funding to develop um, a, a pool of money to say, you know what, we're not serving that population based on the data. Let's create more funds. Let's go to the philanthropy organization. Um, and all of that is actually based uh, most of the time on our data sets. And if you ever want to verify what I'm saying, just look up anything data related and look at the source. And a lot of the times it'll say U.S. Census Bureau, um, because in addition to the decennial census that's done every 10 years, we have a business survey. We have uh, area census survey, which is another one that's like about 75 questions. And it goes literally talks to you about your commute time and and things like that. So as we're creating functional societies, it's the data that we gather that really help us advocate for something in some communities and, and sometimes not. And so I would say the data is there for everybody, but not everybody uses the data to advocate for everybody. So we provide the weapon and, and now it's up to the policy thinkers and makers to use it to tell better stories about the communities that need change. Right. That's so important. Um, so, so important. That's why I asked you that question. Um, so offline, we talked about um, the census business builder and I thought it was so interesting. Um, could you share uh, the details of this tool with our listeners and how now Lex and I, we, we have clearly stated that we are against capitalism, but how <laughs> big corporations <laughs> happen to use this free tool that you offer and they're making so much money off of it. So absolutely. So the census business builder, like everything else that we have is free. So now imagine you're a small business owner and you want to figure out what my target market is, what my competition is. If I'm going to open like a barbershop in, in a zip code, let's say 21217, who else is here? Who's my competitor? How can I target a specific group? All of that is available to you by simply going to census.gov or even just typing census business builder. And it provides you a market landscape of what you know, uh, what you need to know as a business owner. And a lot of us, Going back to the data point, we start businesses without knowing our, our uh, you know, strength, weaknesses, you know, the SWOT analysis. And what this tool does, it gives it to you uh, based on geography. And it actually breaks it down per industry. So um, you can want to open a thing that there's already 10 of that in that zip code. So data will tell you, do not do that. <laughs> Go to somewhere where there's not what you're building and build it there. Um, and it's a free tool. The Walmarts use it, you know. Um, if you think about if I'm opening a business, I'm only going to open it if there's enough people to consume what I'm, I'm, I'm selling. So big entities use our tool because the API and, and the, just the way we created it, it's, 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 it's down to the bone. We pull all our data sets and we allow people to see um, what the return could be when you open a business in a specific geography. So. Right, right. Thank you for that. Um, my next question. So I know where I'm trying to take this question <laughs> and feel free to be completely candid. Um, we talked to our listeners about the census in various episodes and we talked about how important it is to be counted. Could you speak to who can actually fill the census out? Mm, absolutely. So and I'm going to hit it first. The citizenship question is not on this census form. You do not need to be a citizen. You do not need to be documented. You do not need to be um, anything other than a resident at the time of the count, which is April 1st, 2020. That's our snapshot day. 
But if you're spending majority of the time in this country, undocumented, non-citizen, um, you you can fill this out because what we're promising is that we're providing services for everybody. And if you think about it from a, just a data perspective, um, a hospital has to serve everybody, right? So we say only citizens, you know, some people made the case that this country is for citizens and, and I'm not here to make a political case because the Census Bureau is apolitical, nonpartisan. What I'm saying is um, at the end of the day, when a hospital is serving people, they have to serve whoever comes. And so if they're undocumented, they're non-citizen, they're utilizing their resources given to them by the state to serve um, these residents. And so it would be short-sighted to think that um, certain groups should not be able to fill out the census. So to answer your question more directly, everybody living in the continental United States during the time of the count can fill it out. And it's important that they do because we have to allocate services, whether it's something as, as, as um, nuanced as just language services, right? If we're going to have doctors in a specific community, um, that community has a huge um, Asian population. We should want the, the hospital to know that so they can staff doctors and provide care in language because that matters. So um, we encourage everybody. So if you hear anybody say citizens can't fill this out, tell them that's fake news. Um, <laughs> Julius, minor from the Census Bureau. Um, but it was decided. If you don't believe it, uh, it was decided in the Supreme Court. Um, there was an attempt to add the question um, that was not successful. And it was brought back down because it said there was no constitutional basis for adding the question onto this decennial census. Nice. And that's really important to uplift because I think that aside from just the confusion, sometimes there um, is a lot of hesitation around the census. And I feel like this is really a good step in making sure that is inclusive and accessible. So that is awesome. Thank you for uplifting that. Absolutely. So uh, one of my other policy areas, um, I think the reason why we vibe so well is because of education, but also another one of my policy areas is data privacy. And I want to know, you know, you working at the Census Bureau, how secure is the online census form this year? Because it is the first year we're doing this. Yeah, so it is. And I work for the census, so it's going to sound like I'm hyping up where I work. But um, as a data nerd and as a person who's here to advocate for um, information, I don't want to give information that's not true ever. And I will never be in a role where I'm put in that position. But it is by far the most secure platform you'll ever find in the planet. Right. Before the decennial census, before we went online, we still we always collected data and we're the largest statistical agency literally in the planet. So all we did was we pivoted to now, as we're opening up to, for the public um, to go online, what can we do to ensure that the safety and the privacy and all these things are are met? So we worked with other agencies, right? We worked with DOD. We worked with um, all these people who literally spend their whole uh, uh, agency ensuring that everything is safe and secure. And so right. it is a promise right. that we give that... Um, when you fill out that form, it's completely secure. We also worked on the volume issue because a lot of times with data, you can have a secure platform, um, but if, if it's not built to handle the volume of respondents, um, it is a risk. So we, we, we got this scorecard from GIO and they said, this is these are the things you have to address. And we addressed um, all the pertinent things and make sure that 
this particular firm, although it's the first time online, it's going to work. But if you don't believe me, if you fill it out online, you know it's been smooth, seamless. We've had nothing crash, and we've actually had nothing but positive responses regarding the people who went online, including myself. Okay. That's good to know. So here's the reason why I'm doing it by mail. Um, I'm always a first type person. This is my first time feeling it out on behalf of myself. Don't give me that side eye, Alexis. So <laughs> I want to mail mine in. <laughs> like, I'll never forget. I'm always the first person. The first time I got a chance to vote, I was number four in line. I got to the polls at 6 a.m. And stop looking at me like that, Lex. Um, that's just, that's just me. I just like to do that. So you're old school. I mean, and, and that's why for you and, and the people like you who, um, still enjoy the paper form, you know, the paper form will be actually rolled out this coming week. Um, so if you have not received your actual paper form, it's coming out this week. Most people received a postcard to go online, but you'll finally be able to get that paper form. So it's exciting. It's old school. Yes. I'm very excited. Um, so weird question. <laughs> I always ask interesting questions. But do you have a favorite part of the census, and why is that absolutely? So part? I'm a former, I'm an educator at heart, and I, I and I thought I understood what I signed up for, and I realized I did not. Um, so when I started, so this is 2020. I am 35 years old, and this is the first time I filled out the census, right? So. I was in the unique position where advocacy looked different for me for the first time. So I would get into a room and the data people would say, well, people from certain communities who have not gone to school are the most prone to not responding. And my advocacy changed because I'd be like, actually, um, you know, I got a couple of degrees and this is my first time. Um, so I don't think what you're saying is accurate. And people would have to look at me and be like, huh. So let's look at the data differently, right? So I, I was able to advocate for different groups by virtue of the fact that um, it's not true. It's like the education gap is not always a economic, social class thing. Sometimes we right. don't trust the government. Like we just don't right. really trust the civic engagement process. So when you right. specific people and say, hey, fill out this form, right. we're like, eh, I'm good. Um, so I was able to take my former like lack of understanding about how important this is and flip that to educate um, the groups just really in near and dear to me, right? So young people, I love working with college students who've never thought that this was the biggest policy issue. Um, mm -hmm. I'm in Baltimore City now, I live in Maryland, um, and it's interesting to see what, what happens when you give people the truth, which is, it's dollars and cents. And people are like, so, so say more. And I'm like, $675 billion a year. Um, Maryland lost about 1826000 a year for every person I counted. And people are like, nobody ever heard that, right? I didn't know that. And I'm like, I know. Um, I didn't either until I did, right? So for me, my favorite part is now that people are filling it out. Um, I have old students because I taught at uh, Morgan State uh, freshman seminar. I okay. We didn't know that receipt. I'm sorry. We got it. We acknowledge that is that receipt. You taught where, and you were teaching what? Uh, Morgan State University freshman seminar. Um, okay. This in the Earl G. Grave School of Business. Bless, bless the, the late Earl G. Grave. Um, and 
my, one of my students literally texted me. He was like, Mr. J, like, this was the most anticlimactic thing. You know, like, I was real mad about this. Did my census online. It took me five minutes. And it wasn't even that it was anticlimactic. It was just, I remember that student who, the idea of that student filling out the census and going online simply because I might be posting it on Instagram, like, that, that's full circle for me, you know, for, as an educator. So that was my favorite part of the census. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, I have another question. What has been the most challenging during the decennial census? I know the year is not over, um, but what has been most challenging, at least from what you've experienced in getting everyone to fill out the census? Mm, so I'm going to keep it real because y'all are my people. Um, well, okay. everybody's my people. I'm here to count everybody once, only once and in the right place. That's what I got to say. <laughs> Everyone, we're all people. We're all friends. <laughs> the most challenging part, um, and this is a data. So we did a um, census barriers, attitude and motivation survey. And so I always start with data and then I'll give you the real. Um, and in that survey that was done independently from us, they found out that specific things for this census made it challenging even before I got to this role. One, the political climate is challenging to say the least. Yeah. Um, the, the amount of communities of color has increased, but the trust for government has not. And that is not unique to this administration. Um, and then yeah. people have needs that are not always directly correlated with filling out a form. People want jobs, food, access, healthcare. And the connection between if you fill out this form, you might get that job 10 years from now isn't isn't appealing to a lot of masses. Um, so when I started um, Maryland, I had the fortunate luck was one of the states that um, sponsored that lawsuit against the government for the citizenship question while being the Maryland coordinator. So I'm like, that's awesome. Um, and, and I was caught between this idea that I loved the constitutional framework of the law and how they challenged it. I was like, yes, but I was advocating um, for this. On behalf of the census. And so I was like, that's tough. You know, this year, um, or is it last year, whenever CBC was, I was on a census panel. Um, I go to CBC all the time, like for good, bad, and, and turn up. Um, oh, but this yeah, time, I did see each other there. Exactly. So I was there and, and there was a panel where I was the representative for the census and by default, the federal government at the CBC. So I'm sitting there and I have to keep my monotone. So when people are like, we don't believe that the census does an accurate job in trying to get communities of color to respond. And I'm like, and they're like, what do you think, Mr. Government? And I'm like, well, for the record, um, I think it's still an education gap. I don't think there's one big bad wolf. There's no... Uh, Wizard of Oz, there's no man behind a castle. Right. There's just what we think to be true. Um, and I told them, I'm not going to like, I'm not going to convince people to trust the government. That's not my role. <laughs> what I'm going right. to tell you, I know you don't trust the government, but let's put that aside. But I could tell you why this matters to your community anyway. Um, so learning to pivot initially was rough because I was that person who was challenging the construct. But now I'm sitting in the construct thinking like, ah. Uh, it's a good thing I read Spook Who Sat By The Door by Sam <laughs> That's plug. real. Go um, ahead and plug so, it. Yeah. So, um, but no, but I love the work. At the end of the day, I think we need more people in this kind of advocacy role. Um, I've watched 
um, communities of color like really come together. I've watched rural communities that are often forgotten really like also come together. I've watched um, Baltimore City, right? The mayor, uh, Mayor Jack Young, he did a census PSA the other day, right? The Governor Hogan did a census PSA. So although politics is huge right now in the state of Maryland where um, I'm, I'm accountable for, the congressional, state, local, and those people when it comes to the census, it's all work and no politics. And you will never see anything like that ever in life, right? People don't talk about the same thing that is important to everybody at the same time. Um, right. So being a part of that has been, you know, kind of, yeah, it's, 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 I'm excited to see what happens. And Maryland is currently 15th in the nation in terms of response rates. Um, second in Northeastern states, only second in Virginia. So, you know, numbers. Okay. Are um, so, yeah. We got to get Ohio and North Carolina on that list. Well, <laughs> Hold on. Is, is Ohio and North Carolina high on that list? No, Ohio's on numbers. Um, Ohio. So Ohio is actually part of the Philadelphia region. Um, so uh, Maryland is is part of nine states, which is a Philadelphia region of the census. So I report to the Philadelphia region. And within that nine states, we have like Maryland, Kentucky, Virginia, Ohio, Delaware, um, D.C. And so, yeah, Ohio right now is a little bit higher than Maryland. And the um, Ooh, is it? out there, shout out to Rose Simmons. Uh, we have a, a competition and then... My goal is to make sure that we do as good as we need to do. But, you know, top 10. I want to get Maryland in top 10 for the first time ever. Um, and specifically um, by lifting the least of these, you know, Cornell West. Um, yes, the least of these. I'm sorry. I had to. Did you listen to our last episode? I did. I did. I did. Oh, oh okay. What was that? Grace and good vibes? Yes. <laughs> Granddad, the pastor, don't let me go to church on y'all. Come on. <laughs> We're known to go to church pretty often on this podcast. <laughs> now, for the record, we advocate for all faith-based uh, entities. Whatever you believe in is fine with you. Amen. We accept you for who you are and where you come from. Amen. Amen. So, final question. Um, this has all been such great information, but as Lex and I are going to talk about in the majority of this podcast, unfortunately, is the coronavirus. Um, but yeah, so how is the Census Bureau navigating the decennial census amid the coronavirus? Like, how how has that, how is it working with you all? Have you all figured out ways to, I don't know. Yeah, how are you all navigating That this? is a fantastic question because, um, so... Although I cannot directly touch on um, the coronavirus from a response perspective, because states are the ones which are in a position to respond the best. However, our operations, um, and I think it's just it was just a stroke of luck and, and timing, because so for the first, between March and the end of April, we were always going to be online or phone only. Um, so our operation was predicated on the idea that people will go online and respond on the census. And then beginning um, May through July 31st, that's when we were going to start doing the enumerators. As you can imagine, the idea of door knockers is not um, a good idea right now for a lot of people. Um, and so yeah. 
that operation has not been canceled because we're not there yet. Um, but what we've seen is that people have gone online and gone over the phone. And uh, as a nation, we're about, I think, a little bit over 50%. And to put in context, uh, 2010, that only 74% was the average across the board. And with three months to go, we've already hit 50%. That's so, awesome. And awesome. when I tell you we, we are happy, we are probably the only government agency that's like, I am so glad that we went um, online, we went digital. So I think um, the reality of, of, of this epidemic is a lot of um, local entities were not prepared to make their transition to go online or digital. I know school systems who are like trying to go virtual, um, a lot of platforms are not equipped to handle that volume. Right, so it takes time. It takes time and, and just the data storage, right? Um, that's why Zoom right now, well, Zoom is excellent and it is a brilliant tool to use. <laughs> we, and then, um, but we pivoted, I think, earlier than this happened and we've been able to continue operations and we're still working. Um, my role is remote, so I was already permanently remote. Um, our partners, though, have been excellent. So we, my strategy in Maryland, it was never going to be the, the federal government leading this charge. It was always going to be local entities. So we launched complete count committees everywhere across the state. And they're doing work, right? They, they have weekly calls. They have phone banking. I know Prince George's County, um, they're taking the, the they're, they're going to um, give extra credit for students who are given laptops to do the census with their parents. And what's beautiful about that is the students were given laptops because these are students who do not have a computer at home, right? So you can put that into context of what that might represent in terms of the community where a student might need that. And now those students are being told you'll get homework assignment or homework credit if you go home and help your household, right? So now we're championing young people. So for me, who's a diehard youth advocate, I love what um, the strategies when good people just come together and say, you know what, we're still alive, we are still here, and let's make the best outcomes come out of this situation. So um, that's dope. Thank you for that, and I, I thank you also. You ended that on such great vibes. Um, really appreciate all the information that you shared with us. Um, when Lex and I will, this was this is Lex baby. Lex presented this idea to me and we set our intentions to educate our, educate our family, educate our folks, educate the community. And yes. I feel like you've helped us achieve, the, achieve that today. So thank, thank you, Julius. You. This has been really, really great. I appreciate you. Thank you, Lex, for, you know, letting us, you know, be part of your, 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 your creation and being part of your vision. Um, thank you to all the listeners, you know, on behalf of the U.S. Census Bureau. Uh, this is a snapshot of America, and we want everybody in the picture, and it's that simple. So get in the that's picture. True. Okay, well, that's all Amen that needs to be that. said. Thank you so much, Julius, no for joining us really and is. sharing information. Um, we definitely are looking forward to educating, like D'Andrea said, our community. And if we have other questions, we'll definitely feel free to send them along to you. Absolutely. Oh, and 20 census.gov, go online. That's all I got. Thank y'all. Okay, and we're back. That was such a good like segment, DeAndrea. I'm so glad that you have friends in these high places. Okay. Like 
I really appreciated him coming on the show and explaining more about the census, especially since last Wednesday was census day. And I know there were people that probably had questions and this is the first time that we're doing it online, like he said. So I'm glad he was able to shed a little light for our listeners. That was cool. That was dope. All right, but let's get into the State of the Union. So, girl, (laughs) I feel like the mood was just so high and we were so good. And now it's like we got to talk about Rona again. So the federal government has extended the stay-at-home order. Folks, we are supposed to stay in our houses until at least April 30th. Child, how are you feeling at home? How's that going? So (laughs) I would have been home anyway. True until all my homework got done i am that old (laughs) and also i mean my job is at home but it's like i'm more so i'm more so i want to say scared but i feel uneasy because i know that i was just about to lose their lives yeah i I was just reading an article the other day that was talking about how detroit is finally hitting the point in which the peak is coming And so, you know, in some ways that's encouraging because it's like the worst of this is going to be over, but it's also very upsetting and disheartening because we know that at the peak, that means we are basically at the point in which the most people are dying, the most people will be affected, the most people are suffering. And yeah, it's just really hard to be going through this process right now. I think a lot of people are just feeling the overall grief and trauma of the unknown, um, you know, whether you're dealing with the, with the illness or not, again, showing symptoms, not showing symptoms, it's just, it's, it's a difference from our, from our normal. And there's been so many articles and things, people just talking about what is normal, right? Like this new normal, this new reality, I don't think we're going to be able to go back. And I honestly don't think this is going to just be until April 30th because your president, you have got this under control. Yeah. Um, so I, before we got on this, uh, recording everyone, I was telling Lex, I was talking with a classmate, Y'all having a- with <laughs> another classmate who shout out to Meryl. I don't know if she listens, <laughs> but if she listens, shout out girl. Um, she, she's like a public health whiz and she knows everything public health and she's, and she, I can tell that she truly understands it because she's so passionate. She's so passionate about it and she can break it down in ways that even I can understand because public health is not necessarily my area, but she's, uh, my classmate told me it's all, it's all speculation right now what the researchers are saying. And they believe that, you know, although we may be, I don't know, somewhat normal in June, it's also kind of, oh, disheartening that we also may be back to social distancing. Yeah, I was talking to people too, and they were basically saying like, they, I don't know, they really can't take it any longer. I feel like this is something that is messing with our mental and emotional, um, as well as our physical. And so I really hope that the federal government can get it together to... Um, really get a hold on what's going on because social distancing, well, I'm not a medical professional. So just a disclaimer, like I studied psychology, I studied political science, but I truly believe that if we don't actually find a actual cure or, you know, something to actually stop the virus, social distancing is really just kind of a makeshift solution. Um, 
which kind of leads us into our next, um, I guess, story for today. There have been several um, new developments in terms of testing for the coronavirus. And um, apparently, your president is stopping federal funding on Friday, today, um, and leaving it to the states to continue these efforts, which I think is not ideal in the way that we should be going, especially since so many states have been saying we don't have the capacity. Um, so how do you feel about that, D'Andrea? Trump just throwing us to the wall, throwing us to the walls. Uh, such a headache. It's such a headache. Like, my thing is, how do you expect people to get tests? Because if we're pulling from the largest purse, purse strings of the nation right now to just to get this done, you take that away, there are going to be some testing sites that just automatically right. close because they don't have the resources to continue. I think that that is heartless. I think that that is completely un-American mm -hmm. if we want to talk about being American. Um, and it shows yeah. where this president's uh, priorities are. He doesn't care about people getting texting. Apparently a, a FEMA spokesperson said that, um, you know, testing was always meant to be temporary in this situation. But I really feel like to our prior point, like if we're going to make this an actual um, if we're actually going to flatten the curve and not just flatten it, but like eradicate it, get rid of it, we're going to need that capacity. Like it's, we're, we're going to need to test people. We're going to need to have the correct um, vaccine or medicine or whatever. Like none of our solutions should be temporary. So yeah, I read this and I was just like, this seems backwards. Like, are we really about to be in here? April 30th, May 30th, like if we don't, and, and, and a collective effort, right? Like it's not just people staying in their homes because I think when these situations happen, it's, it's, it feels familiar to blame people and to blame individuals, but really like a lot of this stuff is systematic too. Like even if everybody stayed home and nobody went outside, like if we don't have capacity right. in our hospitals, if our federal and state and local um, officials are not working together in tandem to really defeat this this pandemic, then girl, we about to be here till December, and I ain't got time. I got a capstone. I got stuff to do. Like, <laughs> girl, you and everybody else. Like, I just <laughs> this is getting real auntie. <laughs> Again, this frustrates me because no, it yeah. could have been avoided. Like. Child. Anyways, huh. so testing, yeah. Um, if you all are listening right now, and you know, unfortunately, you have loved ones who are going through this, I really hope that they're able to find testing um, quickly, soundly, because unfortunately, testing will be closing in a majority of our of our regions. Well, at least um, the capacity for it. So, the federal government will be kind of wiping its hands of it, which is unfortunate. Um, right. I also, girl, I want to talk about this drug. There has been so much hoopahala. What drug? Hoopala. I don't even know. Hoopala. It's like that. Hoopala, that's it. Hoopala. That's the old people be saying. Hoopala. <laughs> but there's oh, new, this new drug called hydro, hydroxy chloroquine 
Thank you. That was really a feat, y'all. Um, and basically, it, it's a drug that um, the federal government has been touting or toting at their uh, press conferences. It's said to have uh, really good effects on malaria and beating that disease. Um, but the jury is still out on its actual effects on this um, COVID-19, seeing as this is a new strand of coronavirus. Um, a lot of criticism and some support for the drug. Um, I know that they are rolling out um, trials in different cities, Detroit being one of them. Um, and there's been some pushback about, you know, certain cities that actually would be chosen as um, the first population of people to experience this drug. You know, even from what Julius was saying and our own history of just like the system and, you know, medical apartheid and people, particularly community of colors, has a Tuskegee experience, um, really feeds into community of colors hesitation and uh, a lot of times distrust of the medical system. Um, so this is, this is definitely a new advancement. I did hear that this drug is particularly supposed to be used on medical and health professionals first, and that it is not necessarily a drug to eradicate the virus, but more so stop its, um, its multiplying. So definitely not something to, um, get rid of it, but more so to treat symptoms um, so I think that alleviated some people's concerns because they were just like, oh, you're going to give this, this drugs to all these black people in Detroit? Like, that's not it. Which, you know, hey, agendas are hidden. But um, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I feel like I would need more of a like medical background to really go into like the actual effects um, in terms of like actual advantages and disadvantages. But I just wanted to bring it up because I feel like it's important. And I don't know if it's necessarily something that's being talked about as broadly as um, other things. So I don't know. Have you heard about this drug in North Carolina? No, actually, I haven't heard about the drug. One thing that does worry me about this drug, this new drug, is that people are already signing up to be... Um, for trial yeah. testing of this drug and and I don't know I wouldn't do it because I want to actually I probably wouldn't do it even if the FDA <laughs> said this is a brand new drug I'm like kind of like with the new Apple updates girl I'll be downloading that first one go right and then away. they figure out the bugs <laughs> and they fix it <laughs> right that's what worries me and um kind of what I'm gonna get to in my tea but like when we look at who are who is being dis disproportionately affected by the coronavirus mm -hmm. and deaths and tragedies yeah that's black and brown people what you're not going to do is test this drug on us and you're not very sure yeah. of what the impacts will be that's yeah what it's very interesting do. because it is actually being used as a trial so it says that participants receiving the drug treatment will receive 400 milligrams twice daily and on day day one of the trial and then they will see 200 milligrams twice daily two to three five so i guess two to three five of the week those not getting the drug will be given placebo twice daily for five days so yeah this is an actual um it looks like an experiment an actual clinical trial that they are um hoping to corral adults to do 
Um, it's really interesting. I think that yeah. to your point, we definitely need to stay vigilant and make sure that we know all the information about this. One thing that really did concern me, um, because I have my right. own mixed feelings about it, was you have to sign a waiver that basically says like you won't sue the government. See, it's stuff. It's stuff like that, and like <laughs> that is pulling more so on just like my research background, just the psychology and like making sure that like people feel comfortable doing the trial, but also like there is some type of ownership <laughs> that you take. Like that's, that's very concerning to me. So I don't know, stay safe y'all. Uh, I definitely am not in a position to tell you what or what not to do, especially, you know, in the face of loved ones that are suffering from this disease and, I think a lot of us just want want the storm to be over, want people to be better, but yeah, right. Hopefully, then for sure. And consult your if physician. you can, if you can reach them. Actually, you know what? Because I did get an email from Blue Cross. Shout out to Blue Cross Blue Shield. Like they don't sponsor us, but like on a personal tip, they be on it. They be what's up? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway, they basically told everybody that like if you have Blue Cross Blue Shield. You have free testing for coronavirus, no matter what the president says. That's dope. Also, you are able to do free telehealth. So if I have like symptoms that aren't necessarily related to COVID-19, like I just have a, a, a regular, regular fever right. or like a stomach ache or something, I'll be able to actually just call my doctor on my phone. And it's free because they're encouraging people to stay the hell out of the ER and right. hospitals. That's so, dangerous, like spreading germs. That, it, yeah, like stay home and we'll help you at your house. So that's kind of cool. But yeah, definitely um, listen to us because, you know, we're going to bring the facts. But also, like Deandrea said, check in with your physician if they have time and capacity to let you know what's going on. Yeah. Oh, uh, Deandrea, I do not want to talk about this last thing. <laughs> Well, tell me, no, tell me what you did. I, what was your first, like, what did you do when you first found out? Uh, okay, I mean, you were there. So our next and last topic on today's episode and session of State of the Union is Bernard Sanders dropped out of the race. He has officially uh, suspended his campaign. Um, when I first found out, I didn't do anything because I was on a Zoom call um, for work, and I think you actually texted me, and I just pretended like I didn't see the text, and I pretended like I didn't see NPR tell me that this man suspended his campaign. So really, I was apathetic and um, avoidant. That's exactly what I did. And then later, after I got off the Zoom call, I was FaceTiming with a friend, and he was like, so how do you feel? And it was like... <laughs> know it's that dramatic and then I really just started word vomiting about how this is yeah. tragic like and not even because I love Bernard so much like right. you know whatever the great white hope but like he really was the candidate that I felt best aligned with in the race currently um and I felt like he was really going to take up the mantle for some of a lot of the progressive policies and ideologies that we've been trying to see come to fruition for a long time. So um, it, it's, it's upsetting. It's disappointing. I think the just off GP general principle is like, wow, America, like you're really still not ready 
even in the midst of all of this, we're not right. ready to be <laughs> to be wholly progressive. Um, that's upsetting. And some of this is like spilling into my tea, so I'll leave it there. But yeah, how did how did you feel? So my first initial thoughts were not surprised. Um, I knew it would be a matter of time. Mm. Um, yeah. Unfortunately. But I will say this, when I was on social media, I felt a little annoyed by those who were like, yep, now we can finally get to business. And it came from people who I know have the same values as me. And it is consistently makes me feel every election makes me feel this way, but it makes me feel as though what else should we be doing to educate folks that a Biden candidate or an establishment candidate is not someone to help you reimagine the things that you really need in life. Because you better say, girl, right. hey, I mean, hey, like, hey, hey, like you said this in the first episode. You can't, you cannot be lukewarm on social issues. Yeah. It's either you hot or you cold. It's either we about to get rent freezes or we not about to get rent freezes and we gonna vote your ass out. <laughs> Like, I did blink it out. I blink it out on my own. Because <laughs> it's getting smack in here. But that's really real. Like, what What other ways should we be educating folks? And I'm not saying that in a way to make anyone who supports Biden feel, um, I'm not trying to be condescending. I'm more so trying to, trying to ask those, like, what can I, what can we, what can people like me, organizers like me do to help you? realize or maybe do you not realize that that person does not have all of your best interests in mind and see it's it's a slippery slope because i think i mean i think i already had a tea about this but like i don't care about other people but marginalized communities black folks we really need to start talking about what is our end goal what's our objective like we don't need to talk in the you know whatever yeah. terminology is cool policy i get the intersections but at some point we really need to sit down and and have a cut and dry conversation like are you trying to get free do you want others right. to be free with you okay so let's right. look at the the pathway there and like it's really right. no shade. Like at this point, like we really don't even have time to do that. Like it's time to get to work. I think a lot of people are defeated back into my team. Now is not the time to uh, put your head down and give up, throw in the towel. You know like, what you got to do on November? You got to vote for it. And, like, and you better vote for it. Because like that is the, the only option we have. Uh huh. Right and like, but even more than that, like you need to hold him accountable. Like I don't care about exactly. him being in the office. I don't care about the DNC coming. I don't care about everybody. Ooh, we got to get Trump out. Trump is not my biggest villain. Like there are so many things. People talking about this is the apocalypse. The apocalypse. Wow, why can I not say apocalypse? Apocalypse. Apocalypse. Like apocalypse. 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 This is not apocalypse. Oh, girl. <laughs> Now you know I did. Okay, not... I was just joking on that last one. Yeah, that's smack. Um, but okay, <laughs> I just hate you. I just can never get one serious. <laughs> but you love me at the same time. I really just cannot do this. Anyway, moral of the story is the world has ended for some people three times over. Okay, mm. and so what we really need to start understanding is that for Black people, for Brown people, for marginalized folks for trans folks and intersections of all of those things. Like you can find a villain in a lot of these people. 
And so it's not good enough to just get this man out of office and get Biden in there and, and continue the same normal that is still devastating for a lot of our communities. Like as progressives, it's not the time to put our head in the sand. It's not the time to start fighting about what we could have did, what we should have did. Well, why didn't Elizabeth stand up there and do a tap dance for Bernie Sanders? Like, I don't care about any of that. What I care about is the livelihood and the strength and the survival and not only survival, but thriving of our communities. And so what are we going to do within this system to make sure and ensure that our people get the stuff and resources that they need. Like that's basically my team right there. Like it's accountability hour. Now it's really time to rise to the occasion. Like boo-hoo. Right. And and it's not about being Trump. It's a more so about like we mentioned in several other episodes. It's about holding your values, voting your values, and then also holding the president accountable. Cause I mean even if the president happened to be Elizabeth Warren, we would still be holding her accountable. Absolutely. Like absolutely. Like yes. And like the reason why we're we're pushing for certain people to be in these positions is because they want to be held accountable. Have you seen these press conferences? People think that people just be coming up with these reasons to not like folks. Like anyway, Joe can be very condescending. He can't even finish his sentences. Like it's just like I want an official who can be in office and actually wants to be accountable to the people. It's a public office. Where do you think you're getting this money right. from? Like my taxes. Okay. So, you know, I just think that it's unfortunate that Bernie, you know, couldn't couldn't finish. But to your point, it's not necessarily surprising, but it's not now is not a time to just fall into resentment, cry, be apathetic. Like, I wish that I could do that. And in some ways, like, I feel like this election is even more critical than ever that we need to dig in and get in that where part. you fit in. Um, that part. But like, we don't need to, we don't, we don't need the same talking points. We don't need the same roadmap. I need progressives to really stand up and uh, put your money where your mouth is. Step up, up too. I'm sorry, you said what? Step the fuck up? I, I think I did Step say the that. fuck up. Okay, that's where we at. <laughs> <laughs> that's where we are. <laughs> All right. Anyway, but I feel like I just. I just did my whole tea. Um, okay, let's jump into this question. So, this is a little lighter. Um, one of my friends, shout out to Jessica, because she's going to be super excited that I said her name on this podcast. This is smack. Anyway, um, was listening to our podcast last week. Hey, Jessica, girl. Hey, Jessica. <laughs> she's going to be like, hi. Okay, anyway. Um, she's cute, but smack. Anyway. So she basically was listening to our podcast and I know that Jessica is very type A, like she plans everything. So this seems very um, apropos for who she is, but she asked this question. So what is your process for preparing for an episode? How do you decide what out of the million important and slash terrifying events to focus on in one hour? This is a really interesting question. Um, I feel like it's not as traditional as like, you know, issue based, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But still very important. I think that I was saying last week, I realized that even in the short time of us doing this, um, this show, I've realized how 
invested I am in being a podcaster and how it really is like a whole nother job when you sit down and you really think about, okay, what's the layout? How is this going to, you know, (laughs) I know I'm preaching to a choir right now, Um, but yeah, what's the layout? What are we going to talk about? How is it going to land? How are we going to edit things? I don't even do that part. So shout out to Nia, but like, yeah, that's a whole nother thing. Okay, that I will never know. Maybe we can have like an editor session. Ooh, we should do. Okay, anyway, um, let me focus. But it would be cool to like have a guest, like Nia as a guest. Anyway, I say all <laughs> that to say there is a lot of thought that goes into um, curating an episode. Um, I think for me, it's really important that the basis of this show really uplift um, current events and things that are going on in the world. Um, would like to start incorporating more foreign things once this slows down, but I think it's important to um, just highlight what's happening and to really talk about it in a digestible way. So, you know, you'll notice that DeAndre and I will definitely kiki in between, but we have facts, we have data sets, we have guests who, you know, yep. are tied to the work, um, I think, in very substantial ways. Um, and so for me, finding information or things to talk about is really driven by uh, what I think our listeners want to hear and what I think is important to right. um, just navigating and being in the society. So I can punt that back to you. I think you spoke to that excellently. I don't really need to I echo that. I don't really need to add my two cents. Okay, well, it is what it is, girl. So we just out here trying to cater to y'all. Y'all are our biggest um, support and our biggest motivator. So, you know, if you are listening to this episode, we definitely appreciate you. Please tell a friend, subscribe, like we on every damn platform at this point, which is kind of what's up. But (laughs) there's no excuse not to listen to unrespectability politics at this point because we are literally so many places. Everywhere. Literally everywhere. So pick a place. But yeah, okay, let's get into this democracy now. All right. So, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Go ahead and get into it. Let me get into it. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, we're not going to be joking around. You're right. Okay, okay you're serious. right, because we are serious. Go ahead. So, my tea for today I named it after a quote I heard Brittany Packnett say in a video. She also tweeted this quote, talking a little bit more about some of the data I'm going to get into. When America catches a cold, black and brown communities catch the flu. Brittany Packnett. And this sounds like a poem, but it's not. I saw this tweet and video by Queen Brittany Packnett, and her comment can never ring so true and relevant during the t- this time. NPR, National Public Radio, highly reliable source, might I add, reported about one in three people who became sick enough to to be required hospitalization from COVID-19, aka the Rona, aka coronavirus, were African-Americans. And according to the hospital data from the first month of the epidemic released by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Provision, They found that even though 33% of those hospitalized patients were Black, African Americans constitute 13% of the U.S. population. So let me repeat that because I know I said a lot of numbers, but 
this is something that is very alarming. Not only do one in three people who became sick and that required hospitalization from COVID-19 were African-American, 33% of those hospitalized patients were Black and African-Americans constituted 13% of the U.S. population. Like there is a proportion proportion game that I'm trying to point out to you Mm -hmm. that is not sitting well with me and I hope it doesn't sit well with you. Uh, By contrast, the report found that 45% of the hospitalizations were among white people who make up 76% of the population. And by 8% of the hospitalizations were Hispanic who make up 18% of the population. If this doesn't make you angry, it should make you furious. Reason being, the epidemic could have been avoided. I know I keep on saying that every show, but it really frustrates me because all of this really could have been avoided. No, that's important information to highlight. We don't have to be, we didn't have to be going through this. There was other places that were going through this and we could have learned from their mistakes, but I digress. Bye-bye. Exactly. Exactly. So... In an article, I found this other article by the Brookings Institution. Shout out to our line sister, Nye. Nye, Nye, hey, Nye. Okay, sorry, that's the um, But yeah, <laughs> so I hope she listens. Anyways, <laughs> in an article. She don't have to now. We're shouting her out. Okay, sorry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> in an article from her job at the Brookings Institution, they found, which I am sure is already pretty apparent to black, parent to people of color, us, um, blacks relative to whites are more likely to live in neighborhoods with lack of healthy food options, green spaces, recreational facilities, lighting, and safety. Why is these that? subpar? Hmm? I said, why is that? Is it like racism or something, or like we just choose those spaces? Or... Oh, I'm about to get into that. Right oh, now. got you. Okay. So, so the reason being, these subpar neighborhoods are rooted in the historical legacy of. Redlining. Oh, shout out to community development. Bye. Right, right, right. No, but for real. Like, so what I'm trying to articulate here is because people of color are already relegated to a certain standard of living that is of some, for the most part, no part of their own. They are hit by viruses such as the coronavirus at a more alarming rate Mm -hmm. and a more alarming um, impact Mm -hmm. than those who are non-white. And that is my tea because it's just so frustrating. Like those are our aunties. Those are our uncles. Those are our family members. I just found out recently that my cousin has the virus in Albany, Georgia. And reason being um, in Albany, Georgia, like, they are really getting hit by this virus hard. And I think now I have, I mean, I was very um, impressed to see that NPR is reporting on this and the Brookings Institution is reporting on this because let, even though we got a line sister at the Brookings Institution, she is one of few okay. people to come. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so we, we are getting a lot of attention from those uh, big names such as the Brookings Institution that may or may not have a good group or a large group of us reporting on these issues. So people are learning about this. And I'm just saying like this should really make you angry and we should really be doing something about this. And cutting federal funding for testing sites is not it. No, it's not. It's really not. It's not. It's really not. 
It's not. And that's my tea. That's my tea. It's just, wow. it's just damn right disrespectful. Like <laughs> it makes me sad to feel as though somebody really doesn't give a give a care about our community and would do the like it's I just cannot. I cannot and I will not. And you and you shall not. Hit me <laughs> up. My um my handle is at DeAndrea New. We gotta do something about this. Hit me up. up. I am not playing. I'm sorry, y'all. It's not funny, but I'm just, I'm really glad that this episode finally brought out this righteous anger that DeAndrea has been just suppressing for so long. Like, DeAndrea has really been oh low-key mad in a lot of these episodes because she was trying to keep it cute, but there's really no point. Like, we didn't drop the F-bomb. We just said the words. Like, it's we're tired, and that's enough, okay? People no, are dying, and nobody has time. And that can, you know, that just slides right into my tea i really think that to my prior point it's unfortunate that bernie sanders is not in the race anymore and you know we can all take our space to feel however we feel but this is a call to progressives this is a call to liberators organizers activists the time is now right like the next steps need to be taken. This is not a time for us to just give up or be mad at the system. Yes, I hate the system too, but what are we going to do about it, right? Like it is time for us to basically, and like, this is not something that you all don't know, right? Like I think that as marginalized folks, as black folks, we have always um, just made miracles out of the cards that we've been dealt but now like i said before is a time more than ever that we need to keep building local power we need to keep talking to our folks like we need to keep with the keep on and anybody who is anybody who has you know ties in community work who shares like liberation abolitionist praxis like understands that like the work and the real power is always in community. Like it was not going to be led by, um, you know, electoral politics. Like some people say like, this is, this is a tool. We have many tools in our center rule, but like now it's time to use some of those other tools and elections can be great in pushing forward a goal, but like, they're just, that's it. It's just, it's just a catalyst. It's just pushing forward a goal. Like we need to keep that goal in mind. And so for me, my right. tea is it's accountability hour. It's accountability to oppressives. It's accountability for this raggedy man that's about to be in office after this other raggedy man that's about to be in office. Like don't, don't Ooh. fix up. Uh, uh, uh. We here. Okay. Let's just say that child. Because, you know, I personally am tired of having to pick between the lesser of the evils. Like, I don't want to fixate on who is in office as much as what they're going to do in office. And also, like, what are we going to do to push them to do the things that we want them to do, right? Like, we need to agitate. We need to build local power. We need to coalesce or come together with other organizations that have been doing this work, whether it was Trump, Obama, Biden, like their work does not stop. And that's what I'm saying. Like we need to develop and cultivate and sustain that hustle. Cause that's what I'm looking forward to in November. Like, 
we need to put pressure on it. And honestly, like that is the only way that I feel like I'm going to be okay moving forward with our current circumstances when it comes to elections. Like, right. You gotta, like you said, just keep your values very close to you and act on them. Be principled in your actions. So that's all I got to say. Yeah. Be principled in your actions. Maybe that should be our title for this episode. Maybe. I don't know. We'll play around with titles. As we always do. All right. Well, that was quite an episode. Um, I hope that you all enjoyed it. Uh, this was a lot, but I feel like it was very needed. Um, anything that you want to say to the people before we go? I want to leave on this. I want to give everyone a a big virtual hug right now because people are really hurting. People are really hurting. And there are things we can do. Absolutely. Oh, Deandre, that was so... Yeah. You were just the most thoughtful baby ever. That was really sweet. I echo the virtual hug and, you know, just sending people prayers and you are in the unrespectability politics cast thoughts so let's keep on with keep on and we'll see you guys next week